0: Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout that's the dsrnetwork.com/buy and code DSR2024 thank you for your support
1: 9 12 10 28 2
0: 23
1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, it's that time of the week again. Welcome to DSR's Above Average Intelligence, when Each week, we like to look at the world from the perspective of the intelligence community and those close to it. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Rothkoff, but in order to average things out so we live up to our title, we have somebody of superior intelligence, Mark Polymeropoulos, CIA uh, veteran um, and uh, bon vivant, and uh, welcome, Mark.
2: Welcome, David. It's, uh, It's snowed. Six inches in DC, so the entire—I uh, would say the entire city and probably the country—is now paralyzed. Um, but uh, but I I would note I would note that we have a new name for the podcast. Yes, and uh, I'm digging it. I like it. Above average intelligence, gentlemen, our guests. It's no
1: reflection on you. It is clearly a reflection on us. Um, uh, Our guests are terrific. We're joined today by Bruce Hoffman, who's the Shelby Cullum and Catherine W. Davis, Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also a professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and we're joined by Jacob Ware, who's a Research Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Welcome, Jacob.
3: Thank you for having
1: me. It's a pleasure. I've been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations since, like, the Wilson administration. Um, And always glad glad to have you folks on to join us. Uh, These gentlemen have written a book. It's called God, Guns, and Sedition." far-right terrorism in America. Uh, It's a scary book. It is one of those books we encourage everybody to go get and read. Uh, And the reason is that the issue is super important. It has been super important for a long time. But as we head into what could be a highly contentious year, we already have some signs to suggest that these issues covered in the book may be Uh, And in some scary ways, even more important uh, in the year ahead. Do your concerns about 2024 have anything to do with your timing of the book,
4: Bruce? Yes, uh, we, we actually finished the book in 2022 when we had started it, in fact, in April 2020. Uh, And that was a reflection of the fact that the world was becoming a very dark place about two or three weeks into the pandemic lockdown. In fact, within days of the lockdown, already across the internet, all sorts of far-fetched conspiracy theories were circulating, blaming Jews for orchestrating this, uh, urging people to target Asians and Asian Americans, uh, urging others to cough or sneeze on various persons of color. And we decided that this book was important to write because what we were seeing wasn't new; it reflected an historical trajectory. And then, of course, January sixth, twenty twenty-one happened when we were about halfway through the book, which gave the book added relevance and momentum and made it more important to show the connectivity that what had occurred on January sixth was not an aberration, but, but rather what a, what a nuisance!
1: What a nuisance for an author! You know, you're halfway through the book. You've got the premise, and
4: all of a sudden, reality encroaches. Well, the reality infused it, I think, with greater urgency. (laughs) Uh, It was not something we were expecting. And in fact, even now with the publication of the book, January 2024 is a lot darker than I thought it would be when we finished the book.
1: Uh, Jacob, what's your take on this? We'll go back and forth. Mark will ask the next question and so forth. We'll go around, but I'd like to give both of you a chance to open it up here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I completely agree. 2024 um, is a year that I think a lot of us working on this issue are quite concerned about for a number of reasons, right? First of all, just the possibility of violence, election-related violence. Um, It feels to me like there are a lot of possible moments uh, at which that could break out, whether it's the primary process, right? Whether it's the election itself and the lead up to it, whether it's uh, the former president's court dates, January sixth I think showed us that even days that are typically uh just days in the calendar that are kind of symbolic moments in the electoral cycle can still be targets for violence and that's and that's concerning, but the other thing that I think is even bigger and I think might be might be worthwhile for your listeners to think about is this kind of violence and this kind of impact in the United States has impacts abroad as well. it impacts our soft power impacts our foreign policy. And uh, this is a big year for elections around the world. I think there's 50 elections. We've already started in Taiwan. A lot of those democracies look to the United States to be the exemplar of how you run effective democracies, how you run effective voting. And if we're going to see a repeat of the 2020 cycle this time around, uh, we should be very concerned, not just for American democracy, but in democracy around the world.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of debate about how many elections are going on in the world. You would think that was a simple thing to arrive at. Uh, I saw Samantha Power, the uh, head of USAID, said there were 60. Somebody else told me there were 70. There's a lot of them. Uh, we should be the exemplar. Uh, we just uh, do our daily podcast. We talked a little bit about Guatemala, which uh, is having a trouble with its transition, thanks in part to the intervention of the former Director of National Intelligence, Rick Grinnell, who went down there to help the people who lost stay in power? So it's a complicated world out there. Uh, I just threw that in because it has to do with what
2: we we talk about here, which is intelligence. Mark. So uh, first, just a, a quick comment, Jacob. I think you're right. You know, I spent you know my career as a practitioner, um, meaning you know in the counterterrorism world, meaning I was either at our headquarters or, or uh, overseas, and we spent a lot of time. Um, just even as U.S. officials, let's even remove it from the counterterrorism arena, but kind of wagging our finger at other countries, saying that you should do this, you should do better. Um, pretty extraordinary now that the world is looking to us uh, and, and in some ways looking at us uh, in horror. But let me just flip back to, to Bruce for one quick second, because, you know, when I when I think of you, Bruce, um, uh, you know, again, in my old world, you know, you're one of the preeminent scholars and academics on international terrorism. And so when you when uh, you and Jacob wrote this book, it certainly caught my eye, and that's when I, I contacted you, um, because actually, you're going back to your roots, as you say in the book, that you actually started a lot of your writing about domestic terrorism. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the premise of the book is that this isn't just, you know, the, the roots of our domestic terrorism issue is not necessarily Donald Trump or, you know, or January 6th, some of his, you know, some of his behavior, which I think a lot of us find as rather shocking. but it goes back far greater in time. Can you can you kind of elaborate on this? You know how this this kind of pathway where we have gotten to now today, but it certainly didn't start just a, a couple of years ago.
4: No, that that that's right. And, and as you pointed out, when I began my career as an analyst 43 years ago, my first account, as it were, uh, was violent far right extremism initially in Europe. Um, but this was because in 1981, everybody else on my team had chosen the more active groups or the more uh, noticeable groups at the time, the Red Army Faction in Germany or the Red Brigades in, uh, in, in Italy or whether underground in this country. So I had focused on on the far right initially in Europe, but within a few years, it was evident that there were problems in the United States. And that's the connectivity to today. This extreme anti-government viewpoint, uh, these calls for sedition are by no means new. These surfaced actually at a time or where there's some historical parallels to, to today in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when the United States had completed roughly then a quarter of a century of overseas military expeditions in Indochina. When the u.s economy wasn't seen to be in great shape the oil embargo from 1973 was still having its repercussions there was terrible inflation for example and interestingly the immigrant issue was a very salient one but the big difference is back then there was no social media so you had these collections of people that were indeed gravitating towards one another Uh, there was an entity called the Aryan nations based in hayden lake idaho that in that era purported to be the Palestine liberation organization of violent far-right extremism in the United States. In other words, to bring together these disparate groups. It never got very far because their reach was still very much in isolated pockets of the country. But you fast forward to the 21st century, and especially the 20-teens, and you have the advent of social media, which has just hypersonically empowered this movement now. you know even someone as technologically inept as i was uh, in the spring of 2021 you could very easily go on facebook and find boogaloo boys groups boogaloo was code name for civil war or, or revolution or an uprising in the united states and very easily find that these groups were totaling 75000 followers and that's without digging very deeply so there's no doubt that social media has empowered these groups in ways that the originators of this movement let's say in the 1980s could never have imagined.
2: Jacob, how does that how does that then kind of go into the notion of accelerationist strategy? Can you can you kind of tell our 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 listeners about this? I found, I found that to be fascinating.
3: Sure. Um, accelerationism is a strategy of terrorism that seeks to commit Acts of violence that will accelerate some kind of cataclysmic collapse or apocalypse. Now, you see elements of this in, in really most terrorist ideologies, right? Terrorists are revolutionary and accelerationism is, is revolutionary. Um, but a lot of the acts that we've seen in kind of the past five or 10 years that, that Bruce and I trace out in the book are driven by this concept of trying to, uh, to accelerate a collapse. Um, I'll give you one example of what this looks like because it can lead to quite odd, sometimes terrorist targeting, um, back in January, 2020, I think, or 2021, there was a, um, there was going to be a big second amendment rally in Richmond, Virginia, um, that was going to bring together people, you know, in defense of gun laws in, 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 uh, or the absence of gun laws in Virginia. And you had two neo-Nazis who were. Uh, part of a terrorist group called The Base. One of them was a Canadian uh, reservist. So he was a foreign fighter. And they were planning to conduct an attack at this rally, hoping basically to, uh, intending it to be a false flag that was going to spark a broader conflagration between police and and rally goers here. Um, One of the themes I think that comes out of our book and also that's important in the 2024 cycle is how kind of people on the right of the political spectrum have wanted to overlook or or ignore this threat, and it's not just about you know the January sixth kind of violence. It's also about um, the white supremacist acts we've seen in places like Pittsburgh and Buffalo. Bruce and I argue that that's a big miscalculation because the targeting that accelerationists seek to uh, advance will also end up targeting people on the right, and we saw that obviously in Richmond, but we also saw that on January sixth, um, where you had um, this movement to try to basically, uh, hold accountable in, 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 in scare quotes, the, the conservative Republicans who are not going to align with, with the effort to disrupt the election.
1: Well, you know, that brings up an interesting point though, because while there have been groups throughout us history that have, um, uh, you know, had agendas that are contrary to the agenda of the government or contrary to, Um, certain policies or groups of people within the United States Um, we've never had a situation in which um, so many of these groups are so openly associated with a major political party and a major political figure in the United States Uh, and indeed um, we saw on January 6th was the president of the United States, somebody who is theoretically responsible for the safety and security of the United States, calling these people into action. And what we've seen during this campaign is that he still views them as his allies. And this has actually become something of a mainstream view. You know, Elise Stefanik, a leader in the Republican House of Representatives, Calling uh, people arrested for uh, the events of January sixth hostages, and uh, we have seen the president, a uh, former president of the United States, talk about pardoning them, and we have seen him refuse to rule out violence, which would presumably be carried out by them going forward. Bruce, how do you reckon this 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 shift, where you know these groups were once well on the outside? Or at least tacitly on the outside, you know. Maybe the KKK once rode through the South, but did the doing of, you know, pu- you know, public officials, but
4: surreptitiously. Now it's out in the open. Well, that's exactly right, and I would say, you know, if the, if the, the first main difference is the power of social media that I described previously, the second one is the top cover given by mainstream elected uh, political officials. That is not exactly unprecedented, but it is new because, of course, the Klan in the nineteen twenties had four to five million members and had elected governors, uh, members of the House, mayors, and so on. Harry S. Truman had been a member of the uh, the Klan. Hugo Blackman, the uh, Supreme Court justice, but this this is different. And what the one thing that's different too that people don't notice is that it's as much internecine as it is directed against the other party. Um, Look, on the cover of our book, we have a scaffold and a hangman's noose that was erected outside the United States Capitol on January 6th. I mean, in and of itself, that should give everyone pause that in a democracy like the United States, you have a scaffold that is going to uh, you know, hang elected officials. But who was that scaffold elected for? It wasn't necessarily for Nancy Pelosi. It was specifically for a Christian evangelical Republican vice president. Mike Benz, that's what it was there for. And what we've seen in recent years is threats to members of the Republican Party whose views diverge or cleave from this particular uh, extremist interpretation that aren't going along with the January 6th denialism.
3: David, could I just add something quickly on, on that? Because I think it's a really important question. And I just have one one thought. You're absolutely right. Anti-government extremism has been part of the American You know psyche for a long time. And we trace that through the publication of the Turner Diaries in 1978, the bombing of the Alfred Murrah building uh, in 1995, the Bundy standoffs right in 2014 and 2016. But one of the really difficult things to get at in the book was at some point that shifted. And it almost started to shift away from being purely anti-government towards being almost pro-Trump. And it's hard to know where that happened. We kind of write that Charlottesville's a big moment. And when you listen to their voices of these individuals, go looking back at what happened at Charlottesville, August 2017, when you have these explicit white supremacists and neo-Nazis converge there, a terrorist attack happens, and President Trump issues those immortal words. There were very fine people on both sides. People now in the movement still talk about Charlottesville as being the kind of watershed where they realized, you know what? This activism that we've been doing for a long time, that's always been fringe, this is now welcomed by the president of the United States. That was a shift. Um, And that's a very, very frightening thing, especially as we move into 2024.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, you have the closeness between people who are close to the president, like Roger Stone and some of these groups. Uh, You have them visiting the White House. You know, you have it's, it's all out in the open since then.
2: And it's really quite striking, Mark. So you know, one of the things that, as I was reading the book, I was really struck by, um, really two things. Um, one is kind of the inability for for this notion of right wing extremism to catch on with the Republican Party in the sense of what to do about it. You know, when we've when you know, for example, when uh, Secretary of Defense Austin commissioned a study about you know extremism in the military, this was amazingly controversial uh, on the Hill. So I guess the, the two part question for, for both of you is, um, one, you know, what are some of the things that that, you know, uh, in terms of policy prescriptions that we can do? You know, this isn't like the old days when I was in Afghanistan or Iraq and Syria. I didn't. Ha- you know, I had special operations forces and, and drones at my disposal. I had tools. So what are the tools to counter this? But at the same time is how do we do this when uh, even just the discussion of this, you know, engenders so much controversy within the Republican Party? So, you know, um Thoughts, both you, uh, Bruce. Why don't you? you, you Let me add
1: something to that because I was going to ask a question that was tangential to it, and I'll just throw it into the same question. Um, We've done a lot of podcasts in which people who are involved in these issues, uh, particularly people from the FBI, have said our laws aren't up to this. Our laws don't define domestic terrorism. They don't allow us. We we don't have a mechanism in you know, U.S. domestic security to deal with these terrorists like we would deal with foreign terrorists and that that's a gap. So maybe you could deal with that too. And the answer marks, but
4: we absolutely agree that it's a gap. And in fact, uh, one of our recommendations is that we, do, we need domestic terrorism legislation uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, firstly, we should be calling these things what they are and not dancing around uh, using all sorts of euphemisms. If we had a domestic terrorism law, people convicted of seditious conspiracy, which after all is a violent overthrow of the U.S. government, which is exactly what terrorism is about, is violently overthrowing governments, we'd be calling them terrorists and not hostages. Uh, But more to the point, I think what what drew us to this particular recommendation is the, the sentencing inequities that we see. In other words, if you're providing material support to a terrorist group like Al Qaeda or ISIS or any foreign terrorist group, uh, but an ISIS in particular, uh, the average sentence handed down is 13.5 years. And what really troubled Jacob and I in in, in writing this book is we were finding repeatedly that persons doing even worse things, for example, uh, um, engaging in all sorts of violent acts and conspiratorial violent acts, um, were getting far lighter sentence. So take, for example, Christopher Hassan, um, U.S. military veteran who was then a serving member of the Coast Guard, who amassed a small arsenal of automatic weapons and plotted to assassinate uh, elected uh, senior officials, uh, uh, representatives of the Democratic Party, also uh, people very prominent in the media that he considered too liberal, uh, is not convicted on any kind of terrorist charges. Instead, is convicted of firearms possession while having uh, narcotics. Um, and in fact, even then, a judge has to come in and expand his sentence using terrorism enhancement statutes, which exist but are, pl- are applied rather more subjectively. So we're saying those should be uh, standardized. Uh, there was a case of someone in Northern Virginia, for example, who had criminal record from the time he was a teenager, firing a weapon at a a fleeing vehicle during a botched drug deal, and then is arrested for um, amassing 50 automatic weapons, uh, 200 magazines, selling the automatic weapons to his friends for $14.88, 14 being the number that's the white supremacist credo, and eight being the eighth letter of the alphabet for, for Hitler. He was a member of a group, Waffen, which is a terrorist group. I mean, this is a group that's prescribed, for instance, by Canada as a a foreign terrorist organization. It's not like some of the groups on January 6th that we could dance around, whether they're terrorist groups. Um, The day that he was arrested, he joined the White People's Patriot Party, a white supremacist organization, membership of two groups, and basically sentenced to 366 days in jail. And of course, that's reduced on time served, whereas you have someone of a different religion, a different skin color that's going to jail for 13 times longer. So that's one of the main reasons is, is, is to bring sense to this. Also, think about it. We have hate crimes laws, and these were enacted in the 1990s. These enabled judges to sentence people for things that are crimes, assault, battery, harassment, arson, vandalism, murder, bombing, kidnapping, to sentences that are three times longer. And this is meant to express society's opprobrium, that there are certain crimes in a democracy that go beyond the ordinary criminal statutes. So we have these for hate crimes. Why don't we have them for something that just, you know, incontestably is terrorism.
1: Jacob, um, you know, as I listen to that, I think, you know, it's made more complicated by the fact that not only do we not have the laws, but if you start pardoning these people, you start embracing them. You start elevating them. Um, you actually end up um, p- p- legalizing these activities. You 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 increase the likelihood that they're going to happen, and and that seems to be the position of an entire U.S. political party, which is kind of like legitimized domestic terrorism.
3: Yeah, you erode the deterrence against this kind of act, which is which is uh, a real. Issue also a lot of the people who were prosecuted for January sixth uh, received fewer than four years of a, of a sentence, so they're they're out already. Um, just to zoom out for a second, we um, and I'll give you a little story insight into what it was, you know, what it was like to read the book. So we we divide our counterterrorism recommendations into three chapters, uh, into three sections. Sorry, the first is um, basically things that you can implement now that will have an immediate term impact. And that's the laws, uh, the the legal side, really. So Bruce has already mentioned domestic terrorism laws. We do write about gun control and how you would implement that in a common sense fashion. Um, We do write about Section 230 reform to try to push back against free reign on social media. You have measures you can begin in the... um, begin now that will have medium term effects. So this is really the, the countering violent extremism bucket, as we call it in the field. How you try to erode radicalization, push back against some of the some of the risk factors that might be driving somebody down that path. And then the long term imperatives that will be achieved by those other measures, um, but that really are about 10 and 15 years from now and trying to 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 stop the next generation from emerging. And that's really about national unity and trying to rebuild trust in our system, in our constitutional guarantees like uh, the Free Press. Um, and to be honest, I think one of the saddest parts of writing this book with uh, with Bruce was, as we were going through the blind review process and then as we were going through the review process inside our organization at the Council on Foreign Relations, I believe basically everybody said, uh, we actually we actually led off our conclusion initially with this concept of rebuilding national unity, rebuilding trust in each other. Uh, rebuilding this concept of country over party and basically every one of the reviewers said "Uh, well that's great and that would be amazing but that's not going to happen and i think that points to both the depth of the cynicism uh but also the extent of these issues these issues are really deep in, in in the u.s right now and it's not as easy as saying you know let's just um let's just implement any one of these things right let's just Prosecute January 6th defendants for a bit longer. Let's just, um, you know, get uh, rid of all the guns, for example. Um, these issues are really deep, they are longstanding, um, and and it's going to require a, a, a generational effort to, to try to push back and, and build a, a safer world for, for generations to come.
4: Yeah, that's a, could I just I jump in with one bright spot? Uh, in this, we, tr- we, we was, try to avoid those on just Phil, but go ahead. <laughs> this was the conviction of nearly two dozen uh, Proud Boys and um, uh, oath keepers on charges of cons- uh, seditious conspiracy, which is one of the hardest criminal charges to prove in the United States. And in fact, in 1988, uh, 14 white supremacists were charged with seditious conspiracy and charged in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and they all were acquitted. And that indeed breathed new life into this movement. Now, I'm not suggesting that the convictions um, for seditious conspiracy on January 6th has taken the wind out of the sails of this movement, but it does show that laws matter and can help. And one would hope that that would send a very powerful deterrent message of some kind. But I think as your and Mark's questions, David, suggest is that it's rather overwhelmed by a, a view that sees these individuals as hostages and not terrorists. Yeah, no, no. there's no question about that. This is the point in the
1: show where we uh, we stop and we say to everybody who is not a member um, uh, that you should become a member because then you'll be able to listen to the rest of the show, which is bonus content for members only. Just go to the DSR Network, click on member, or DSRnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month, um, which is not that much. And it supports us doing all of these uh, things that we do, all this programming and more um and it's going to go up next month so if you if you want to do it this is the time to get a bargain um, um for now though um to non members we say bye bye and to members we say stand by